Good morning. Man, it's good to see you guys. We're continuing our study through the church. What is the church and all that good stuff. And, and we've happened upon the part of our study where we're looking at the markers of a New Testament church. What does a church look like in the vein of what we see in the New Testament? And uh, last week we looked at preaching. Uh, and, and, the, and, and what the Bible calls the proclamation of God's word because God is a communicating God. He speaks and therefore there's a call on all of our lives to be proclaimers of him, his message. And today we're on the marker of biblical theology. Now for you guys who are Three Rivers, uh, whether you're a small group, one of our small groups who are at home watching or you're in the building here attending live you know this. This isn't fresh for you. But those who maybe have stumbled upon us or are watching, who have been introduced to us and are watching at home now, this is going to be new for you. So I didn't want to skip over it just because we revisited it back at the first part of the year. So we're going to come back and circle to it because it's a key mark of a New Testament church. Biblical theology. So we're going to look at what it is, and then we're going to look at an example from the scriptures of practicing biblical theology as we read through our Bibles. The Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you don't have that on your bookshelf, go get it. I don't care if you're an adult. It is perhaps one of the most profound and simple practices of biblical theology you'll ever find. And the Jesus Storybook Bible's subtitle is this. Every story whispers his name. Beautiful. It's absolutely true. And we want to help you get to the place to mine those glorious truths of Jesus and his work from the whole Bible as you do life together on mission with scriptures open seeking to obey the Lord. So some truths about biblical theology as we progress this morning. Biblical theology helps us to rightly interpret the Bible. It becomes the lens and the framework from which we accurately interpret the scriptures. Biblical theology helps protect the church from false Christianity. Biblical theology is going to help us to not proof text. Take a verse and lift it out of its context with no concern for what's around it so that we then misinterpret it. Philippians 4.13 does not mean that I'm going to go put 285 on the bar tomorrow and squat it. I cannot do that through Christ who gives me strength. And that's going to sound like heresy for some people. If you just believed enough, you could. No. I can believe all I want. When I put that on my back, these old knees that have been surgically repaired are going to pop. And I don't mean pop, like, I mean like, explode. And I say, but Philippians 4.13, I thought it was true. Right? That's not what Philippians 4.13 means. It helps protect us from a false and, and even, frankly, a shallow Christianity. Biblical theology is the source of gospel-centered exposition of Scripture. And we're going to see why that's important in just a moment. And it's the foundation of proper Christian cultural engagement. You hear us say around here a lot, it's in the manual. Rightly understanding God's word helps us to see that God has not only told us what to do, he's given us instruction on how we are to go about it. So what is biblical theology? Biblical theology is the discipline of learning how to read the Bible as one story. It's one story. It's not many stories, it's one story. 
with one divine author. Who's the author of the Bible? God's the author of the Bible, and he has many writers who wrote his story down at his inspiration. Biblical theology is one story, or it helps us to understand the Scriptures, as one story written by one divine author that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that every part of Scripture is understood in relation to Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a look first at Luke 24. Particularly, we're going to look at verse 26 to 27, then verse 44 to 47. So I want you to kind of find your place there. And then I want you to flip back over into your Old Testament to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Okay? So we're in both of those places. We're going to start in Luke 24. Then we're going to look back to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Well, let's start in Luke 24 to help get our heads and our hearts around this interpretive framework that Jesus teaches us. The master teacher, the creator of the universe, the God above all other entities on the face of the planet, the only God, the God of the Bible, Jesus tells us how we are to read the scriptures. Now this is after he has been raised from the dead and we get this glorious account of Jesus appearing to two disciples and then to his gathered disciples all together. And in those encounters, Jesus does the most incredible class on biblical interpretation you're ever going to read. And so we want to learn from the master teacher, the creator this morning. Luke 24, verse 26 to 27. Jesus, after rising from the dead, met two believers on the road to Emmaus... And he offered this crash course in biblical theology. And we pick up in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. As many times as I have read that. To you and in front of you and to help instruct you. I cannot get over it. I can't get over it. He began with Moses. He didn't begin with the Gospel of Matthew. It hadn't been written yet. He started with Moses. What's Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Yes, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Listen, if you think you have grown past that, you need to back up and do that again. You're not going to grow past that. You're going to spend the rest of your life unpacking that. So be amazed. Stand in awe and wonder that the Lord started with Moses, went through the prophets, and he interpreted to them everything concerning him. Meaning, as the Jesus Storybook Bible reminds us, every story whispers his name. And then verse 44 to 47, after this encounter with these two disciples, they hustle back to go and tell these other cats what is going on. Jesus appears to them. Let me pick up the story in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You're never going to grow past that, so just stop trying. You're going to be, you need to be, if you're going to be a giant in the faith, you're going to be a giant in that. Right? Is seeing and savoring Jesus in all the scriptures. This is beautiful. Everything written about him in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Utterly astounding. So let's ask a few critical questions to help us get our heart and our mind around this. What book is Jesus referring to in verse 44 that he said must be fulfilled? What is it? It's the Old Testament. So Jesus in verse 44 refers to all this. This has to be fulfilled. What's he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament. And then he gives us the three parts to the Old Testament. What are they? The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and then the Psalms. Now, if we were doing a class on Old Testament, we would spend some time unpacking the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, and the Psalms being a category he gives here for the writings. It doesn't include everything, you know, the Law of Moses and the Prophets, and he gives, like, the writings, like Psalms, Proverbs, right? Wisdom literature and that type of thing. So he divides the Scriptures in these three categories, which they were already divided into at this time, and Jesus names them. And then what does he do in verse 45? Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, Jesus has apparently not done this to this point. And he does this now in a way that he apparently hasn't done it in the past. Jesus, the eternal God, creator of the universe, second person of the Trinity, now in the flesh, resurrected, alive, having conquered death, securing salvation, comes into the room, tells them everything written about me in the Bible had to be fulfilled. And then he opens their minds to get it. So supernaturally, Jesus gives them the work of the Holy Spirit, which he's going to send a little bit later. So in this moment, Jesus just, boom, makes it happen. And he causes their minds to clear up and see clearly. And now with enlightened minds, what is it they could understand that the Old Testament actually teaches? Now, I would think if Jesus is going to open my mind, to help me understand some stuff, nuclear physics would be really cool. Right? I would love for Jesus to open my mind and make the Rona make sense. Sit down everybody that's confusing and all the conflicting data. Open my mind and make me understand the Rona. That's not what he does. Because frankly, it's not the most important thing in front of me today. And for them... The most important thing in front of them at the time was not being caught because of their allegiance to Jesus or their connection to this one that was crucified and buried and now risen, which is eventually going to cost them their lives. Safety wasn't the top priority at the moment. Escaping from the authorities wasn't the top priority. Jesus opened their minds to understand some stuff, and it wasn't how to escape, how to evade, how to avoid. It was so that they could understand something. He supernaturally opens their minds, and with enlightened minds, they can now understand what it actually is the Old Testament teaches. What is it? It's in the manual. That the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Listen, man. This is a lifetime worth of preaching just to unpack that. The Old Testament teaches us that Jesus should suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then he teaches them that repentance and forgiveness of, of, his, of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus says the entire summary of the message from everything written in the Old Testament is that he would suffer, die, rise on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of his sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. 
That's the summary. Everything written from Genesis to Malachi points us to that. And listen, anything else is off point. That's astounding. Now, the implications off of that are astounding in and of themselves, and, and, and that's a sermon by itself. So what I'm trusting is that in your small groups, in your time at home, that you will take some time to unpack, well, geez, if the entire thrust of the Old Testament is that we're to preach Jesus to all nations, where should we be preaching Jesus? Well, to all nations. Is Rome sufficient? No. <laughs> you have a global footprint of some kind because Jesus said the entire thrust is to preach him to the nations, Right? It's in the manual. It's not like we got to run far to find it. It's right here. And Jesus said everything from Genesis to Malachi points us there. What's amazing about verse 46? It's this statement, thus it is written. This is what's written in the Old Testament. This is in the manual. It has been written for us. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they... That bear witness about me. That's a bold statement. Now I want to issue a warning to you here. Ready? Hear this. Hear this well. This doesn't mean that we carelessly impose Jesus on every text. It means we pay close attention to each text on its own terms. But then how every text falls into one of countless sub-themes... And tracing out those sub-themes like following a tributary until it pours into the larger river and finally into the ocean of the entire story of the Bible, who is Jesus. In Scripture, the identity and the work of Christ are the crucial or is the crucial piece of information around which everything else revolves. I had to get my subject-verb agreement correct there. In my notes, I think I messed it up. Sorry. Should have caught that in editing. Turned that in the paper. Would have dropped me down from an A to a B. So yes. In Scripture, the identity and work of Christ is the crucial piece of information around which everything else revolves. This means that Jesus is the interpreted key to the entire Old Testament. So here's what I wanted to do. When we taught on this earlier, I gave you the example of Samson from Judges chapter 13 to Judges chapter 16. This week, I wanted to give you something fresh. And I decided we'd just go with what's in my Bible reading this week. In my Bible reading plan, we just finished up 2 Chronicles and started Ezra. All right? And so Friday morning, I was reading through 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And I always dread. I think, see, I'm now 27 times through the Old Testament. And so every time I come to the life of Manasseh, I start getting a pit in my stomach. I start feeling sick to my stomach because he comes on the heels of Hezekiah, who is such a good king. And then he kind of fumbles it at the end, but gosh, he was such a good king. He did such good work. He's one of my absolute favorites. And we get to Manasseh, and I just feel the pit forming like, oh gosh, here we go. Gonna be bad. And so in reading 2 Chronicles, it's important to understand that Chronicles is a post exile account of Judah and in this post exile meaning they are returning from their Babylonian captivity as Jeremiah said they would do God's been faithful he's moved the heart of a king to send his people back to their land off which they are to launch to the nations and as we read through the book of Chronicles we see a lot of what 
I like to refer to, and Brian Chapel, if you want to read and study Brian Chapel on the Old Testament, calls dead ends and bridges in the kings of Judah. This is worth memorizing, and these notes are available to you on the internet, so you can go and take a look at these. In fact, in my Old Testament class, I had every one of my students memorize this, and it was the first set of questions on every Old Testament exam I ever gave. And if any of those students you ever meet them, they can probably still tell you this. Because once you do it for two semesters, you kind of remember. All Scripture predicts, prepares for, results, and reflects Jesus' person and work. All Scripture predicts, prepares for, results, and reflects Jesus' person and work. One of the ways it does this is through dead ends and bridges. A dead end means that one we have hope in, a king or someone that has promise, that can perhaps be that good one that we're hoping for, they leave us unrescued and wanting a real rescuer. That's a dead end. A dead end is basically a real disappointment. A bridge is one who lives right, does right, loves the Lord, speaks God's word, leads God's people well, yet they died leaving us wanting the bridge, the one who won't die, the one who won't leave us and leave us vulnerable. They're basically a good example. Dead ends and bridges show us God's saving nature through contrasts and comparisons. So let's look briefly at the saving nature of God through 2 Chronicles 33 in Manasseh, who is a dead end and a bridge at the same time. All right? So 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Grab your Bibles and let's roll. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God. Of which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given to Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Dad, come. That's rough. Verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Can I just stop right here? Are you listening? What's God saying right now? What's he saying? What's he saying in this season and time we're in? God's speaking. He's never silent. His word is constantly speaking. The Holy Spirit is constantly ministering His word. What's God saying? That's, that's free. That's, that's, take that. He's talking. He's talking to Manasseh and He's talking to them and they're not listening. Are we listening to the Lord? 
Are we listening to CNN and Fox and Drudge Report and Hometown Headlines and rn-t.com? Are we listening to that or are we listening to the Lord? I'm not saying be ignorant. What I'm saying is there's something more important to be done. God has not let a molecule in the air be out of place today. The lot is cast into the lap, into the lap but it's every decision for them. He makes dice land. You are where you are right now during this time, during this place for a reason. He's at work. Are you walking in it? They weren't listening. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the, of a, of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks. They would literally, these were brutal people. The Assyrians were known to slaughter parts of cities and leave their body parts laying outside the city gates and march the live people out so they could see what they would do to them if they didn't comply. Put hooks in his nose and led him with a rope, Manasseh, out of the city and bound him with chains and bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley. And for the entrance into the fish gate, he carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? That's awesome. Right here, in this one who makes my stomach feel some kind of way, we see a beautiful piece of the nature and character of God that's going to point us to Jesus. Number one, I want you to see this. We learn from the life of Manasseh here as we look with the lens that Jesus gave us that everything here testifies to who he is. We learn that God is merciful and gracious to sinners simply because God is good. I think what sets me off about Manasseh is the longest reigning king in Judah's history. He got 55 years. And he was the one burning his sons and daughters in the fire to a false god. Why does he, why does he get 55 years? Asa, maybe my favorite king, got 41 years. He's a good dude, loved God, and he got 41. This guy burning his children to a false god gets 55. That makes no sense to me. Jehoshaphat, good king, got 25 years. He de surely he deserved more than 25. Uzziah's closest, he got 52. He was a good one too. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Got 29 years. You figure Manasseh would, hey, let me just do what my dad did. Just, just rip off everything he did and do it again. He'd been better off. Hezekiah got 29 years. Josiah got 31 years. Why? Here's why. It's the reason Paul wrote what he wrote in Romans 9, 1 to 11. 
I'm just going to read for you verse 10 and 11 of Romans 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Why did Manasseh get 55 years after burning his children in a sacrifice to a false god? Because it's not because he was good or bad. It's because God is good. In other words, we learn something about the nature of God in Manasseh by seeing that God's grace is not handed out on the basis of merit. God didn't look at Manasseh and go, Fool, you get two years. God looked at Manasseh, gave him 55 in spite of himself because God's intent in saving people is that it be shown that it is of God's good nature alone and not of any merit in us whatsoever. That's clear. This is why Paul writes this stuff. Paul's not making this stuff up on the fly. He's reading from the manual. And when he's expounding it to the church at Rome, he said, so that God's purpose in election might stand. What's that purpose? Not because of works but because of him who calls. God was merciful to Manasseh because God's good, period, end of story. And good news for you and me, God's saving of me is not based upon my deserving, neither yours, but because Jesus is enough. Glory. Second thing I want you to see here in 2 Chronicles 33 is perhaps, maybe, God's giving of 55 years was to provide opportunity to repent. Remember in Exodus 34, verse 68, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. God preached this message. Here's what he said to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children, and the children's children of the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. God preached this message to Moses. I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Through the awful consequences of Manasseh's sin, God grants him the opportunity to repent. Why did he get 55 years? Because God intended to use consequences to bring him to the place of repentance. Through the awful consequence of being conquered and led out of the city as the king with hooks through your skin, led by ropes and being shackled in bronze handcuffs, God set him down and he recognized who was God and king and who wasn't and he turned to the Lord. Because it's not of his own merit that Manasseh gets this free gift. This gift opportunity is completely of the grace of God. It's not a result of work so that Manasseh will never boast. <laughs> we'll be sitting in the kingdom with Manasseh one day and he will tell the story to us of God's mercy. And we will rejoice together that God saved us because he's good, not because of what we deserved. 
consequences are perhaps one of God's greatest gifts as a built-in call of the gospel to run to Jesus for mercy, having been spared and given another opportunity to turn to Jesus. So if you're getting consequences off of bad behavior, look at it as the Lord calling you to Himself. He gave you another shot. Glory to God, right? Glory to God. These gospel calls of consequences for sin and God elongating and being patient with us, giving us life and runway to turn to Him. Manasseh got time because God is good. Third thing I want you to see is Manasseh calls on the Lord and the Lord hears him and restores him and makes himself known to Manasseh. Manasseh calls on the Lord. And God didn't go, nah, you're too bad. Sorry. No, the Lord hears him. The Lord restores him. And the Lord makes himself known to Manasseh. We learn in the text, Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. He knew something. God awakened him to life and caused his soul to know that God isn't Asherah. God isn't Baal. God is Yahweh. Yahweh is God. He knew it. He believed it. In fact, Manasseh got a taste of the new covenant of Jesus that Ezekiel promised in Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 28. When by the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel is looking forward to the day of Jesus and his salvation and his new covenant. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. You could almost take that back over to Manasseh because that's exactly what he did. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I'll be your God. That's just, that's, that, that's, Manasseh, that's Manasseh. That's what God did for him right there. God gave us the picture of the new covenant of Jesus right here in the life of Manasseh. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord gave salvation to Manasseh and passes over his sin until he will pay for it at the cross with the blood of Christ. See Romans 3, 21 to 26 for another sermon. The very crux of the whole Bible right there. Number four, I want you to see Manasseh's faith then works itself out through acts of repentance. In verse 14 to 16, we see that now he knows the Lord and he acts on it. He doesn't go home and curl up with his Bible and hold up by himself and try to avoid life. He knows the Lord and then he begins to act. His faith begins to take on life. He builds the wall. He takes away the foreign gods. He removes the idol he put in the house of the Lord. He's beginning to clean up his own personal consequence of his actions. He threw all these things outside the city. He restored the altar of the Lord. And they came and brought sacrifices. They started worshiping the Lord. <laughs> he repents. He believes. And now his life carries the flavor of obedience. James 2, 14-17 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them 
the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He believes and he gets busy acting on it. Number five, nobody, no one, listen to this, is outside the reach of the good grace of God in Jesus Christ. Nobody's outside the grace of God. There is no place the grace of God can't reach. Not even a king who would sacrifice his own children by burning them alive to false gods is outside the reach of the grace of God. Don't be so arrogant to say God can't save me. Don't be so arrogant to say God can't save them. He saved Manasseh, and he can save anybody. The reach of the grace of the cross has zero limits on it. There's nowhere the gospel can't reach into the human soul and take out a cold, dead heart and put a live one in there and cause them to love him and walk in his way. Nobody is outside the reach of the grace of God. Don't be so arrogant as to think that. If you're listening to this for the first time today and you think maybe you found this in desperation, looking for something, you found the right place. There is no place you are Jesus can't save you. Believe on him and he will rescue you. Finally, if you're outside of Jesus, run to him. All the consequences, all the circumstances have brought you to this point, and he's calling you to himself. So three of us, church. In the notes, you're going to see another example of Samson. We don't have time to go through that, but you can study through that on your own time. How do we apply this today? How do we apply biblical theology? One, you need to believe. You need to believe that everything written in the Old Testament will lead you to Jesus. You need to believe that. As you read and study your Bible, don't settle for letting the Old Testament become a moral handbook or a handbook of courage. That's a misuse of the text. Galatians 3.24, I'm going to give you my own translation of Galatians 3.24. If you're reading the NASB, which is where I first memorized that passage, New American, anybody got a New American Standard Bible still using it? You love the Lord. Praise God. That is the most fantastic literal translation on the planet. And it's also, if you're doing language studies and biblical languages, it's the best cheat tool that there is, too, because it is word for word. And if you're struggling, just go to NASB and get a help. It's awesome. I hope none of my professors are listening to this. Um, here's my translation of Galatians 3.24. The NASB says the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ our teacher here's my translation the law was our guide into Christ whole thrust verse 24 in Galatians 3 it's why the law the law was our guide to show us Jesus it was there to show us our need for a savior so don't settle for letting the text become a guidebook of courage and moral fortitude it is there to point us to Jesus. And anything you learn outside of that, it's an application perhaps, but it's not the main point. Please don't use David as an example of slaying some kind of giant in your life. That is not the point of David. Please don't do that. And please don't propagate that. That is not the point of David. David's point is to point us to the king, the prophet, the priest, who will absolutely obliterate sin and bring his people out from under the hand the heavy hand of sin 
David's a type to point us to what Jesus is going to do. He's not a moral courage example. If you could preach a sermon like that in a synagogue or a mosque, it ceases to be Christian. And if you make it a moral example, you can preach it to a city council meeting. Right? That's not the point. Jesus taught us everything written there points us to Him. Fight with the text until you get to Jesus. Please. Please. John 1, or John chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, Jesus turning the water into wine. Now this is, this probably is a whole sermon, but I, I put it there in the notes for you to see because there's more going on in John 2, 1 to 2 than Jesus just turning water into wine. John is taking pains to show people reading him that Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the one who leads his people out. Jesus is the one who does the greater work in Moses. Moses was there to prepare us for the work of Jesus. Jesus turning the water into wine does some amazing things, but primarily shows us he is the greater Moses. Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood that brought death. Jesus turns the water into wine that brings life and celebration and joy. Moses triumphed over the gods of Egypt through the plagues. Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities by the cross. See Colossians 2, 14 to 15. Jesus is the fulfillment of Joel 3.18 and Amos 9.13 that says the mountains will drip with sweet wine so that on a mountain outside the city the sweet and saving blood of Christ and the blood of the new covenant would make a way to God. Which is why we come and we drink the juice, the wine, to point us to the sweet wine that Amos looked would flow out of the mountain and save the nations. John is pointing us in the text. Not, oh, Jesus makes wine. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the one who brought fulfillment to everything in the text. Go to the text and don't leave it till you get to that point. Because that's what will save you and that's what will keep you. So you need to believe that everything there will point us and take us to Jesus. Secondly, believe that the Old Testament or the best Old Testament commentary is the New Testament. Believe that the best Old Testament commentary is the New Testament. Pay attention to how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. For funsies, go read Psalm 44 and its use in Romans chapter 8. That'll be a fun exercise for you. Number three, know that it doesn't take an advanced degree to read the Bible like Jesus taught us. This is not a function of going and getting a master's degree or a bachelor's degree. To read the Bible like Jesus taught us simply requires that we read it and learn how to read and understand a good story. That's it. I, I say it over and over again, and some people are actually starting to listen because I see you and you tell me if you'll just go read Lewis and Tolkien read the Chronicles of Children's Books just read a good ch children's book listen, go read Tolkien if you want some advanced storytelling but those men understood narrative in its place in helping us see greater reality God who's a speaking God a God who teaches gave us one story him as the author that points us to Jesus. It's the narrative. It's the story. You want a fancy word? It's the meta-narrative. It's the narrative that gives meaning to every other narrative on the face of the planet. It's the story. It's the one. Go read some children's books that capture your attention. The Wingfeather Saga, which is a new one that's out right now, which will absolutely make you cry. Those stories are there to help you learn how to read your Bible better. 
doesn't take an advanced degree, just the desire to sit down with words because God is the God who speaks and plow through them until you see Jesus Christ. And once you gaze upon Him, you will never be able to look away. Never. Almost done. Fourth, actively get on a Bible reading plan and do it in covenant fellowship together. The Holy Spirit will guide seeking people straight to Jesus just as He was sent to do. The Bible is the best devotional book on the market. This is an unpopular opinion, but chances are you don't need another devotional book. Don't replace Bible reading with somebody else's words about the Bible. That will do you no good. Don't read somebody else's commentary about a passage more than you read the passage itself. If you'll go to the text and faithfully stay with it, the Holy Spirit will meet you there and you will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and you will never be able to unsee it. Finally, if you've not believed the gospel, you've seen enough of God's saving nature and character in the gospel of Jesus today to be transformed. So turn to Him and live. And if you are in Christ, perhaps maybe you have seen enough today to move your heart to joy. Sing to Him. Because he is worthy of that kind of worship. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to help us make much of you in worship. Your word really is the lamp for our feet and the light for our path to help us to walk to Jesus and to see him and live. So I ask you now, I beg you now, don't let us miss Jesus. Take us to Christ. Open our eyes to see. Move and stir our hearts to joy. And cause us to be able to be a psalm people, a singing people. Because we've seen the king of the universe. Our eyes have gazed upon the beauty of the Lord. So would you do all that?